they say, see, I followed this, uh, this philosophy and I'm doing great. Um, I rose to the top of my profession or I have, you know, um, I'm a CEO of a multi-million dollar company and there's no argument there. I never argue that that wasn't going to get you there. Right. That's, that's not, that's not the question. The question is, how's everybody else doing around you? And that's, that's what objectivism thinks you shouldn't worry about. This week on Science for the People, we are broaching the topic of objectivism. We'll be speaking with Keith Lockich, senior fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute, about the philosophy of objectivism as it's taught through Ayn Rand's writings. Then we'll speak with Denise Cummins, cognitive scientist, author, and fellow at the Association for Psychological Science, about the impact of objectivist ideology on society. You're listening to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hazra. With me is Keith Lockish, Senior Fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute and Senior Editor of the Institute's digital journal, New Ideal. Keith, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me, Anika. Okay, so why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about your role at the Ayn Rand Institute? Okay, so let me say a little bit about the Institute itself. So we're, uh, the Ayn Rand Institute is a is a think tank, uh, kind of nonprofit organization devoted to the ideas of Ayn Rand. We'll talk about her in a minute, but um, we exist basically to to uh, advocate her writings and her ideas and her philosophy on the premise that, you know, we think the world would be a better place if more people understood the ideas that she presented in her novels. So, I work at the Institute. I help develop content. Um, I teach courses. I write and speak for the Institute. You know, we write on a wide range of topics from, you know, sort of what were her ideas to how do her ideas apply to issues in the culture and that sort of thing. So can you give us your definition of Ayn Rand's philosophy, objectivism? Yeah. So what is objectivism? So just we can kind of go through this in stages. So Objectivism is a philosophy, so it's a, a system of philosophical ideas that were developed by Ayn Rand. So who is Ayn Rand? Let me say a little bit about her. So, you know, Ayn Rand was a, a novelist and a philosopher. Her dates were 1905 to 1982. So she was a 20th century American writer and philosopher. She's most famous for her best-selling novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. And, and in her novels, she presents a whole philosophy. And in many ways, you know, it's a, it's a new and radical philosophy. She has radical ideas about morality. You know, what is good? What is evil? What is right? What is wrong? You know, she, she has, she has radical ideas about what it means to be a good person and what's the right way to live one's life. Um, she sort of, challenging 2000 years of ethical thinking and forcing us to or, or challenging us to kind of reconsider the way we think about these questions. And her ideas about morality are grounded in a whole new set of ideas in the field of epistemology, which is a theory of knowledge. So she has new ideas about the nature of human reason, about how we acquire knowledge, how we validate knowledge, how to think in particular, how to think about the questions that morality addresses. Um, so, you know, to sort of capture in a word her perspective in each of these areas, um, she was a defender of reason and a defender of egoism or selfishness. And we can kind of go into each of those in more detail if you want to. What is it about ideas that make them so radical? 
Well, I think the best way to answer that is to start to go into them. So take take her views in ethics. So she was, I said she was an advocate of egoism or selfishness. So, so, so um, she was a defender of the idea that it's good to be selfish. She, you know, she even wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. So that's a pretty radical idea because, you know, normally when you think of somebody who's selfish, we think that's a bad thing, right? Um, but part of her perspective on this question was when we, when we think about what it means to be selfish, when we think about the concept of selfishness, our thinking is, is kind of unclear and muddled on that. And the, the, the way it's unclear and unmuddled is, you know, when, when you think about what does it mean to be selfish? Well, part of it means the idea of living for oneself and being concerned with one's own interests. But it, but it's also the case that, you know, sort of in, in our culture, if you think about what does it mean to be selfish, we automatically associate with that the idea that it necessarily involves trampling on other people to get what you want. You know, it necessarily includes the idea of exploiting other people and preying on other people, that it's concern uh, for one's own interests, while at the same time having a kind of callous disregard for other people, right? Mm -hmm. Now, her question is, why is that the case? Why should that necessarily be the case? Why is it that being concerned with one's own interests necessarily has to go along with being unconcerned or, or uh, you know, with other people's interests. Why, why does being concerned with oneself mean that you have to exploit or prey on other people? So she has a, she has a, what's radical is she has a totally new conception of selfishness, of what it means to be selfish. And basically it's the idea of being primarily concerned with one's own interests, with taking a, a long range view, you know, pursuing one's own fulfillment and happiness in life, and doing so in a way that is harmonious with other people doing the same thing. Um, now, you know, so that, that's, that's a radical idea in our culture today because of the way we typically think about the concept of selfishness. That's right. I don't understand how, you know, taking care of yourself would also entail harming others. It's strange that that's such a common misconception in society today. Well, so she, she um, <clears throat> and this is how it sort of connects up with some of her ideas about about concepts and about knowledge. She says that the, her view is that a concept of selfishness is what she calls a package deal. It takes things that act, don't actually belong together and it lumps them all together under one concept. And there's a similar package deal with respect to uh, the concept of like altruism and self-sacrifice. So you know, if you, if the, the dominant view in our culture about what it means to be a good person is to be altruistic and to be, to be selfless, right? But again, there's a, there's a similar kind of package deal because, um, we, we, it, when we think about that concept, we think about just benevolence, you know, opening the door for a stranger or being nice to people, you know, just, basic benevolence and generosity and kindness. And we, we put that together with the idea of self-sacrifice. But in her view, that's, again, it's, 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 we're muddling the concept and we're putting things together that don't belong together. Her, when she talks about the idea of sacrifice, she, what, what she means is, is, um, giving up 
something you value for the sake of something that's a lower value. You know, if you, I mean, you know, the model of this is Jesus on the cross. He gives up his life to, for the benefit of all our lowly sinners in the world, right? Um, but that's not the same thing as basic kindness and benevolence. And so when we put those two things together, when we create these package deals in our thinking, um, it, it makes it harder for us to think about questions of good and evil because we don't have uh, tools that are well designed to do that thinking. If we have a mistaken notion of selfishness, it impairs our ability to really think hard about what does it actually take to achieve a happy, fulfilled life? You know, what are the things that I have to do in order to, you know, improve myself, to work hard, to produce values, to, to form loving connections with people? I need to have a clear understanding of, of what self-interest really come, uh, amounts to. I, and I need clear concepts in order to be able to do that thinking. And if they're all muddled, think that, you know, opening the doors for opening doors for people is the same as as actually sacrificing for people. And that uh, living for myself means exploiting other people. That's going to impair my thinking. So let's get into the tenets of this philosophy. How does Ayn Rand suggest that one goes about fulfilling their self-interests? Well, so the so I mentioned you know, two features of her, of her philosophy, reason and egoism. And so her, you know, the, the, the primary virtue in her philosophy is rationality. So she's a, she's a staunch defender of, of reason and science and logic. Um, you know, she, she rejected religion and she rejected all the apparatus of religion. So she was opposed to all forms of, you know, faith, dogma, authoritarianism, you know, she was a she was an atheist before Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris made it cool to be an atheist. Um, so, you know, and and her basic perspective is that we we uh, we guide our lives by means of the thinking that we do or don't do. And um, so, you know, you, you, the, the 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 primary virtue in his her, in her philosophy is to take seriously the task of thinking about uh you know, what are the thing, what are, what are the values that you're going to pursue in life? And what are the principles that you need to live by in order to achieve those values? Do you think it could be difficult to be both a rationalist and an egoist at the same time? Well, so not if you have um, a clarified concept of what it means to be an egoist. So, um, uh, this is part of why she goes to such lengths to, to stress that the way we think about these concepts are built and that we need to straighten them out and clarify them. So I think if you have, if you have a proper conception of what it means to live for oneself, then, um, and, and what that implies about relationships with other people, you know, then it's, you know, being rational isn't just compatible with it as a prerequisite for it. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, in order, in order to achieve anything, you know, being, being rational and, and, um, identifying the proper principles is, is, is critical in any field and, and it's critical in, you know, in thinking about how to live your life and how to achieve happiness and how to achieve your values. I think human beings by nature are very emotional. So I only asked that question because, um, 
I feel like it might be difficult if you are focused on yourself and achieving your own happiness to maintain an objective perspective on all aspects of your life, including your relationships at all times. Yeah, well, so, I mean, that's, so the, the, that's a great question in, because it points to the question of what is, how do we understand our emotions and how does that fit into all of this? So, um, you know, the fact that we, we are emotional creatures is part of our nature. And to be, to be rational doesn't mean that you're like Mr. Spock, where you just, you, you suppress everything. You don't feel anything. You're not emotional at all. But what it does mean is that you, you are rational about how you understand your emotions. So, you know, for, so what are emotions in, in Ayn Rand's philosophy? Um, her understanding of emotions is that, and I think this is consistent with sort of cognitive behavioral thinking in psychology that emotions are the products of our ideas. So there's, um, you know, there, there are, premises or ideas that we hold and when things happen in the world we that that uh we feel an emotional response that's based on the thing that happened but also on the ideas on the premises that we hold so um so when you feel an emotion the 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 important thing is you can you can introspect you can do your do thinking about the causes of that emotion emotions are not just sort of these causeless things that happen and we have no there's no, we have no way to understand them no way to exercise any control over them you don't you can directly control your emotions but you can you can do the thinking to understand their causes and understand your own psychology and if there's mistaken thinking this is what a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy is about if there's mistaken thinking underlying uh, you know, emotions that you feel that, that are, that are maybe inappropriate or harmful to you. You can challenge that thinking and you can correct that thinking and you can work on changing those emotions. And that's a lot of what happens in therapy. Um, so, uh, you know, the way Ayn Rand puts it is emotions are tools of cognition. So the, and the idea is that you shouldn't just imagine that that whatever you're feeling is directly giving you some kind of knowledge about reality and that you should act on whatever the conclusion is that your emotions seem to suggest. Part of what it means to to be rational is to take your emotions seriously, but not to, to be driven by them, you know, to but rather to seek to understand them and to understand their causes. It seems to me that this type of philosophy doesn't work unless everyone follows this particular philosophy of objectivism because it seems that, you know, um, it would be difficult for a person who is rational and objectivist to have a relationship with someone who is not, who is fully emotional and even irrational at times. So how would, as an objectivist, how do you exist in a world of other people who are different? Yeah, well, I, I think it's like anything else. You have to um, you have to under, you know, ironically, Ayn Rand was a big, uh, she, she really liked the, the serenity prayer, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. She was, again, she was not religious, but, but she liked the idea underlying that concept, which is, you know, there are things that are within our control 
and there are things that are not within our control. And I think as long as one is very clear about what is and what isn't in one's control, you can figure out how to navigate the world, including other people. And, you know, if somebody else is irrational, that's not something that's within your power to control, but you can figure out what you're going to do about that, how you're going to relate to that person. Um, you know, if it's, if it's, you know, there are circumstances in which you, you know, there, there might be a reason to continue to deal with somebody. Um, if they're sort of irrational in a delimited way, um, but if they're completely irrational, then they might be somebody that you don't even want to have anything to do with at all. So, um, I think it's a matter of, of knowing what's in your control, knowing what's not in your control and, and exercising judgment. So one of the things about our culture today is, is the idea judge not lest ye be judged is, is come to completely dominate our culture. The idea that it's wrong to engage in moral judgment you know, it's sort of considered totally inappropriate to do that. Ayn Rand's view is exactly the opposite, that that you, her view was judge and be prepared to be judged. So, you know, work to make yourself a moral, virtuous person. Uh, and then, you know, don't be afraid to exercise judgment about the people around you, because that's your tool for assessing whether dealing with them is going to be a value to you or dealing with them is going to be a threat to you. So, you know, the thing is, there's a lot of, we don't live in a world that's dominated by objectivism, but there's a, you know, we live in an amazing world. I mean, you know, if you look at some of the books that have come out recently, Steven Pinker and so on has talked about just how much human life has improved and the quality of life has improved, the technology we have available to us. I mean, there are incredible values to pursue in the world even if you think that a lot of the ideas that dominate our culture are very corrupt and destructive, uh, there's a ton of value to be gained in today's world. Okay, so what do you think attracts people to objectivism? I think it's it's the idealism of Ayn Rand's vision. You know, when you read her novels, you read stories about um, heroes who pursue you know, great ambitions against all odds, you know, and, and succeed. Oh, I don't want to give away plot spoilers, but, you know, um, she has an idealistic vision of, of the possibilities of human life, that it's possible for people to be, to, to, uh, have integrity and to, to pursue great challenges and to achieve happiness and fulfillment. Um, I think, and, and it, and her picture of what that looks like is so radically different to what we typically get in the culture, you know, and in other stories that, that you read. So I think she has an idealistic vision of the possibilities of human life that is incredibly attractive to people. Um, I, I think that's why, you know, her novels, um, you know, more than 50 years after they were published, they still sell in amazing numbers. I mean, it's really kind of crazy. It's not something you see in the publishing industry. Uh, uh, people are, are, you know, continually drawn to reading The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged uh, just because of the vision that she she projects there. Do you think there are certain kinds of qualities or characteristics that objectivists tend to share? 
Well, again, I think it comes back to a, a certain idealism, um, a certain intellectual curiosity, um, a, a, a certain respect for, you know, logic and clarity. One of the things people often talk about that when they, when they, when they read Ayn Rand for the first time, it's, it, they, they, they experience a clarity in their thinking that they've never experienced before. And, and it comes back to this question of, of her, her thinking about how we properly form concepts. She just, she, she doesn't take any concept for granted. You know, if there are ideas in the culture that are, are sort of muddled and confused, she's very good at, at cutting through the confusion and making, you know, crucial distinctions that suddenly make an issue clear. You know, and I, I think people who, who are attracted to that, uh, you know, respond positively right away as soon as they experience that in her writings. In your own opinion, what do you think makes this philosophy a better one to live by than other philosophies? Well, I think it's, it's that it's grounded in a, a, a rational understanding of the nature of human beings and um, what it takes for human beings to thrive and flourish in the world. Um, so, you know, another way to put that is that I think her ideas about morality and her ideas about how to think and her ideas about how to live are true. And, and as a result, they actually, you know, lead to success and happiness in the world if you apply them properly. Um, so, yeah. Okay, so I actually want to spend some time in this interview discussing you and how you became an objectivist. So when did you first come across objectivism? Um, yeah, so I I was introduced to the novels as a teenager. So I read The Fountainhead. I read Atlas Shrugged. I was introduced to them by my mother, really, mm-hmm. um, who had read them in the 60s. Um, and... You know, as, as, as soon as I finished reading those two novels, I just had to find out more about this person. I went to the bookstore and I just bought everything I could find written by Ayn Rand and re- devoured everything. So after she finished her novels, she, uh, finished writing her novels. She spent many years, um, writing nonfiction essays, you know, kind of like developing and expounding on her philosophical ideas. She published some newsletters and that, uh, you know, she would write a monthly newsletter and, um, send that out. And so, you know, she had a lot of her philosophical writings are contained in collections of her essays. So I mentioned the book, The Virtue of Selfishness. Um, she has a book called Philosophy Who Needs It and Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. So I've picked up all these books in the bookstore and devoured them. And, and, uh, that's how I got interested. You actually have an interesting background. You have a PhD in physics. You've conducted research in relativistic astrophysics. I have to make sure I pronounce that correctly. (laughs) So how and why did you make the switch from a career in academia to what you're doing now? So I actually got interested in physics partly because of my interest in objectivism. So, you know, as I said, I... I, uh, I discovered Ayn Rand as a teenager, got very interested in her philosophy. At the same time, I was always very interested in physics as a student. 
And the more I got into Ayn Rand's, the more I got into objectivism, the more that there's, there's, there's a lot of interesting questions in the fields of metaphysics and epistemology, you know, the nature of the universe and space and time. And there's a lot of questions in the philosophy of science that, that if you're interested in objectivism, um, you know, you, you're drawn to thinking about these things and objectivism has interesting things to say about them. And so I was interested in it, partly it was partly my interest in those questions that made me want to go into uh, theoretical physics. I studied general relativity, which is, you know, our, our current theory about the nature of the universe and space and time and all that. Um, so it was partly my interest in objectivism that led me in that direction. Um, and I went to Jewett school. I did research on gravitational waves and that sort of thing. Um, and then at a certain point, you know, I had to make a decision about whether I wanted to be a physics professor or not. And I, and ultimately I decided it was not really, you know, what was calling to me. It was not, uh, the right fit. And all, all throughout my graduate career, um, because of my interest in objectivism, I, I'd had a relationship with the Ayn Rand Institute. I was a student in their programs. You know, we have all kinds of educational programs for students, um, and then at a certain point I had the opportunity to make the switch and come and work for the Ayn Rand Institute and, and, you know, help develop and teach in all the same programs that I'd participated in as a student. And that was too good an opportunity. So I jumped at the chance. What questions do you think you were looking to have answered when you were studying astrophysics? And are they the same questions you're looking for answers to now as a full-time objectivist? Um, no, they're very different questions. I mean, in, in astrophysics, I was interested in just trying to understand the, 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 um, theories that are accepted as the dominant theory says. I was trying to understand, uh, what is our current understanding of gravity? You know, so I wanted to understand general relativity and how does that relate to questions about space and time? So those are sort of very technical questions in the philosophy of science and, um, uh, so that, that's what I was interested in then. Um, you know, right now what I'm more interested in is, is, how, is more has to do with the applications of objectivism to people's lives. How can people use this philosophy to make their lives better? You know, how can they use it to help them achieve happiness and help them achieve, you know, better, closer relationships with people? Um, uh, you know, how can you use objectivism as a tool to guide your life to make it the best, most fulfilling life you can have? And what kind of actions do you take in your day-to-day life to uphold your objectivist beliefs? Well, it's, you know, so uh, objectivism is a, is a philosophy, which means it's a set of basic principles. Um, and so, you know, I, it, it's, It's a, it's an issue of living by those principles. So what are, you know, in her, in her, um, in her moral thinking, she talks about certain basic virtues, you know, that, that are, in her view, these are the principles that people need to live by in order to achieve happiness. These involve things like honesty and integrity and rationality and justice and independence. And so it, it's a matter of, 
trying to live by those things, to to go by the facts, to think for myself, uh, you know, to to be ambitious about improving my own life, you know, and, and to work hard in in trying to achieve all the values that I have. I have, you know, a wife and children and and whom I adore and and just trying to wring all the value out of my relationships with them and, and the things that we do together and and uh, you know achieve achieve all the values that I want to achieve in life. Do you think introducing these ideas in a fictional format makes them more digestible or more accessible to the typical person? Yes, I definitely think that it does. And, um, you know, Ayn Rand's interest in philosophy was, so she was, uh, you know, she was not a philosophy professor in a university. She wasn't an academic. She didn't write technical articles for professional philosophy journals. She developed her philosophy as part of the process of writing her novels because, you know, she was interested in the question of how is it that the ideas that we hold drive our thinking and our actions and shape the course of our lives. So uh, what a novel allows you to do, it's like a little laboratory. You know, you can you can project characters who hold different philosophical ideas, and then you can work out the logic of how do those different ideas lead to different kinds of choices and actions and ultimately lead, you know, in the long run over the course of the novel to totally different character arcs and totally different outcomes. So in a novel, you can, you can project how will different ideas play out over time. And, and, you know, so the arc of each character and the whole direction of the society and the culture that's portrayed in the novel, um, can be an expression of your view of the influence of philosophy. Um, so that in that way, I do think, it, it gives a much more vivid, and actually this was this is part of her view of the nature of art, that art is a concretization of the artist's per- basic perspective on reality and on, on, on human life. Um, Keith, where can our listeners go to learn more information about objectivism and the Ayn Rand Institute? So there's a few places. You can go to our website, AynRand.org, A-Y-N-R-A-N-D.org. Um, if you're really interested in learning about objectivism, we have an app, actually, that has all kinds of courses that you can listen to. It's, it's Ayn Rand University. It's available wherever apps are found, you know, the, the iTunes store, Google store. And, and if you want to, uh, follow our content on a, on a weekly basis. You can subscribe to our digital journal, which is newideal.einrand.org. All right, Keith, thank you so much. Thanks, Anika. Welcome back to Science for the People. With me now is Denise Cummins, cognitive scientist, author, and elected fellow of the Association for Psychological Science. Dr. Cummins, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. All right. So the first question I should ask you is, as a cognitive scientist, what got you interested in objectivism and the people who follow this philosophy? Um, yeah, there's two, two answers to that. The first is that um, as a teenager, like many teenagers, I was introduced to Ayn Rand through her novels. And uh, when I read them, I had two um, 
opposing reaction to them was that they seemed very glamorous um, and they seemed to be talking about uh, uh, people reaching their highest potential and not being held back by others, which appealed to me as a teenager sort of, uh, you know, getting ready to, to enter the world. Um, the second, though, is that my uh, research specialty is reasoning and decision making. And uh, objectivism is grounded in the idea that you can rely on your decision making, your rationality in order to make the best life for yourself. Uh, and uh, as a result, I went back and started relooking, uh, looking again at Ayn Rand, looking at her, not just her novels, but I read her actually her entire corpus. Um, and compared it to what I had learned about human nature, about human problem solving and decision making, about uh, the the kinds of cognitions that we're born with that she was not aware of uh, at the because she was doing her work during the heyday of behaviorism. Uh, and I also looked at people who influential decision makers, influential policy makers who had been interested in, uh, in Rand's objectivism, who uh, basically adhered to her principles and what impact they had on American society, American economic policy. And the outcome was not good. Uh, so I began uh, basically detailing where did this philosophy go off the rails? Why is it that while it has high intuitive uh, common sense, when you try to implement it either in corporate policy or in national policy or economic policy, uh, disasters inev inevitably follow. So why don't you tell me how you personally interpret the philosophy? Uh, well, the, yeah, it, you can just summarize that quite simply by selfishness is the highest virtue. That is, you put your own uh, self-interest first and you don't necessarily go around trying to exploit others, uh, but uh, everyone is always everybody else's needs are always secondary to yours. <clears throat> now, again, do you see the intuitive appeal of that? Right, that you have to look out for yourself. Uh, the problem again is that we don't. We're a social species. We don't live in isolation, and when we only focus on our own self-interest, that inevitably leads to bad consequences not just for others, but in the long run for ourselves. So objectivism, basically, uh, selfishness, selfishness is the highest virtue. Altruism is immoral. Altruism is self-abnegation. So why do you think this philosophy doesn't translate well when you try to apply it to real-world problems? Uh that's a that's a very it's a very good question. Okay, um, first off, let's back up a second and say when did they try to implement it, and when did it, and, and what were the outcomes? I think the most telling example is the two thousand eight um, economic meltdown. Uh, Alan Greenspan was the Federal Reserve uh, chairman for the years that led up to the 2008 economic uh, meltdown. And Ayn Rand was his mentor. Uh, in fact, he wrote the introduction to um, uh, the, the release of, uh, of, her, of her works. Um, <clears throat> now, he was persuaded by Rand that free markets were entirely good and government regulation was bad. 
uh, just like John Galt, he, he saw this as, you know, let the superior people go forward, uh, do what they need to do in order to, uh, to acquire wealth and that this would, uh, benefit the economy. And John Galt, uh, by the way, is a character from Atlas Tract. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he adopted, uh, basically a laissez-faire approach to mortgage and banking regulation. And why? Because he felt, just as Rand did, that business and businessmen could regulate themselves more effectively than any government could. As a result, financial institutions were free to sell adjustable rate mortgages to borrowers with dodgy credit, then bundle those mortgages into investment vehicles that were sold all over the world. Now, inevitably, with adjustable rate mortgages, what happens is that the rates go up. And when they go up, your mortgage payment can sometimes triple or more, and people can't afford to pay it, so they default on the mortgages. So instantly, all of these investment vehicles that were sold all over the world became worthless. And this started um, the global meltdown. Now, interestingly, what happened was the finance interest in, uh, industry then demanded that the government, that is the taxpayers, bail them out because they were too big to fail. And we did. So I think that is one of the best examples of what happens when you try to implement uh, objectivism. Uh, <clears throat> yes. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about maybe the history of objectivism in society and how this philosophy first gained prominence in the public? Okay, she uh, she acquired her views of altruism uh, being a bad thing and self-interest being a good thing during the Russian Revolution. She witnessed, up close and personal, the Soviet, uh, the Bolshevik Re Revolution and the uh, institutionalized, uh, institutionalizing of Soviet communism. So... Her distrust of altruism was rooted in that. For example, she saw her father's pharmacy confiscated by the Soviets. She witnessed up close and personal the subjugation of the Russian populace to Soviet communism, which put the rights of the state above the rights of the individual. And the strong-arm tactics used by the Soviet state to suppress free speech, to terminate property rights, to force other countries to submit to Soviet rule. These all justifiably appalled her. In reaction to that, okay, she went 180 the other, the other direction and said collectivism, any form of collectivism, any form of socialism is wrong. You have to put the rights of the individual above everything else and the pursuit of your own personal self-interest ahead of everything else. Now, again, that sounds very much like American uh, uh, beliefs, and so it, it seems very attractive. But in fact, as I just gave you an example, that doesn't work. Um, socialism isn't so Soviet communism. For example, the Prosperity Index uh, compares over 100 countries on 89 different economic variables and, uh, to see you know, how, how strong are their economies. And I'm looking right here at the 2018 Prosperity Index. The first is Norway, then New Zealand, Finland, Switzerland, Denmark, Sweden, United Kingdom, Canada, Netherlands, and Ireland. The United States is 17th. And what all of those top 10 countries have in common is that they have, uh, they're capitalist countries, but they have a social safety net. They have social programs in place to make sure that nobody, uh, no one gets left behind and to level the playing field so that everybody gets a chance to play the game. 
So do you think there are actually, aside from economics, there maybe are other aspects of society where objectivism could actually work? Uh, if there is, I don't think that they, you know, they, uh, what I would like to see is the objective evidence that objectivism works. Now, what objectivism will show you is that it works for individuals, but that's not what we're talking about. In other words, uh, if you look only at your own self-interest, then you, of course, can do better than other people, right? Because you're always putting your own self-interest first, and that may actually lead to exploitation of others. That may be, uh, lead to um, ignoring the welfare of others. Uh, if, you, if you follow your own self-interest, you can acquire a lot of wealth, you can acquire a lot of power, but it doesn't tell you what you should do with that wealth or with that power. Instead, what it inevitably leads to is the idea that I have all of this wealth and I have all of this power because I'm smarter, I'm uh, brilliant, I'm harder working, I'm more virtuous, I'm better than other people. So inevitably, people who follow Ayn Rand's uh, objectivism end up being people who think that the social order is ordained. That is, I am where I am in this privileged place because I deserve to be there. And other people who are suffering, other people who are not as privileged as me, should be there because they're not as hardworking as me. They're not as clever as I am. They're not as brilliant as I am. They're not as worthy as I am. Uh, so I don't think, uh, and again, I don't want to you know single out any particular group but the the vast majority of, of uh, people who follow objectivism tend to be privileged white males if you look at for example the membership of, uh, of the uh, objectivist groups uh, that's who it tends to be so inevitably that's what that's what ends up happening this is a great segue into my next question I want to ask you, as a cognitive scientist, if you could explain why some people find objectivism attractive, what is it about that particular demographic, the rich white male, that finds this philosophy attractive? Uh, that's an excellent question. Okay. We have to look after our own self-interest. That's, that's, that's absolutely true, right? You can't go around, let yourself be used as a doormat. What appeals to us is this idea that you can survive on your own and that you don't need anybody else. And so there's, there's, uh, you know, there's an old uh, chestnut that if you want to understand the stock market, for example, you have to understand fear and greed as being the primary motivators of human nature. So there's a fear of if I cooperate with others, okay, I may be, uh, get, I may get left in a lurch. They may exploit me. They may abandon me. If I'm instead, I can pursue my own self-interest without having to rely on anyone else. I'm safer. And so you have reduction of fear. And then greed pulls you forward by saying, how do I measure my success? I measure my success in terms of my net worth. The larger my net worth, the more worthy I am as an individual. So you combine those two together and they are very seductive because it promises to, to keep you safe and to make you wealthy. But where do you think that fear of functioning within a society comes from? Uh, well, I think there is. Uh, so I don't want to get too technical here, but I, perhaps it is. <laughs> time. Okay. So here's the problem of altruism or cooperation has been alive and well in evolutionary biology for many, many decades. 
Because if you go out and you look in the animal world, you find out that there's, there's an enormous amount of cooperation uh, among uh, uh, individual species within species and across species. And the answer is, how could this possibly happen? Because we're all supposed to be out there promoting, um, maximizing our reproductive success, keeping our genes in the gene pool. Now, there was a very um, seminal paper published by uh, evolutionary biologist Robert Trivers in the, in the 70s called Reciprocal Altruism. And what reciprocal altruism is, is, it's very simple. You help me, I'll help you. It's a very powerful uh, strategy. In fact, it, uh, it, it, it won a tournament uh, in the 80s uh, for uh, uh, the contrasted to many more complicated uh, uh, rules for playing or algorithms for playing uh, cooperative games. So now the thing about reciprocal altruism is that you can always do better by taking the benefit somebody offers you and then just reneging on reciprocating, right? You end up with more. So in order for reciprocal altruism to spread through a population, what you have to do is you have to protect against exploitation. And the way you do that is by uh, isolating uh, non-reciprocators. Okay, so if you, for example, if you go into a transaction with somebody, you pony up your benefits, they take it, they run away, you never, ever engage in another transaction with that individual. If you do that, and you only participate, you only uh, do transactions with cooperators, people who have character, okay, um, then you not only thrive, but your group thrives as well. So in evolutionary biology terms, the, the, the gene for altruism can, in fact, uh, propagate and spread in the population, become far more frequent because of that. But only if you protect yourself by excluding cheaters, people who don't reciprocate. So there's a sense in which, yes, you have to be a little afraid when you're trusting other people, whether they're going to um, honor their commitments to you. Because if you don't, then you're left um, holding the bag, right? They go off with all of your stuff, and, and you're left with nothing. And in fact, in simulations where you have pure altruism rather than reciprocal altruism, altruists do, do go extinct in those, uh, in those populations. So that's for the fear. The fear is there to, as a uh, safeguard to you, to be careful. Who are you cooperating with? Who are you trusting? So do you think that an objectivist is someone who wouldn't reciprocate reciprocate if they're already engaged in an interaction with someone else? That is a very good question because they consider themselves very moral people and they have to be true to, to their word. But to the extent that they are uh, they are in a position to take advantage, there's no there's nothing in the theory that tells you you shouldn't do that. It's another reason why objectivism um, sorts well with um, uh, with modern economic theory, because the, the the idea behind economic theory, the modern economic theory, is uh, that each person is pursuing their own interests. That rational decision decision makers all a rational choice is always the choice that maximizes payoffs to yourself. End of story. Okay, that's what modern economic theory is is based on. Uh, the problem with that is, again, it's not very plausible in, in the real world. Uh, for example, one of the problems that, that crops up quite quickly is asymmetrical information. Okay, I can take advantage of you if I have 
if I have access to information that you don't have access to. Okay, so this is an extreme form, insider trading. Now, I am entirely rational when I make a decision based on asymmetrical information because I'm maximizing benefits to myself, and that's what I'm supposed to do, right, if I'm a rational agent, if I'm, according to objectivism, following uh, the precepts of, of rational choice. But in the long run, what that does is it, uh, it allows me to exploit others to put myself at an advantage over them. And in the end, uh, we don't live in a vacuum. We can remain healthy. We can remain, hang on to our prosperity. Uh, we can live in a decent, in a, in a comfortable society only to the extent that other people are not, uh, uh, subjected to extreme poverty because we've been exploiting them. You know, it's so, yeah. Uh, it seems to me that uh, many people have very strong opinions about objectivism. It, you know, you have people who either love her, people or, who hate her, or people who have never heard of her at all. Um, mm -hmm. But there isn't much in between. So why do you think people have such strong feelings about Ayn Rand's philosophy? I think because it comes down to this notion of cooperation versus selfishness. Uh, and this, again, looms very large in human history. Uh, again, so let me step back and, and be, you know, be a cognitive scientist for a second, okay? Um, when we're born, we have a proclivity already to, uh, to prefer agents that are helpful as opposed to harmful. So this is some work, uh, done with, uh, infants as young as six months of age, and they, they look at, uh, um, there's these little cartoon characters and they're trying, one is trying to get up a hill and another character comes in and either helps that, that creature get up the hill or pushes them down. And then you, sh you give them uh, a choice afterwards if, after they've watched these little videos of which toy they prefer to play with and they prefer the helpers. Um, we have a proclivity to cooperate. We're social beings from, from the moment of birth. Now, some of that you can see from evolutionary biology, right? That cooperation uh, and uh, preferring helpfulness is something that actually gave us an, an evolutionary advantage, right? We humans compared to other species are far more cooperative than any other species. Okay, now if we go to behavioral economics, you'll find the same thing. So for example, there's a game called the dictator game. I'll put, uh, say, a hundred bucks on the table, and I have you and another person sitting there, and I say, it's up to you. You decide what to do with that money. You can keep all of it if you want, or you can give some of it to your partner. What would you like to do? Now, a rational agent would just keep all the money, right? Because that's what economic theory says is the rational choice. But in fact, that's not what people do all over the world, okay? And not just in industrial societies. They actually... Uh, done these studies in uh, among small-scale societies, hunter-gatherers, and so on. What people generally do is they give away about 30%. So you'll hand 30 bucks to the other person. Now, according to modern economic theory, that's irrational. You shouldn't do that, right? If you have another, uh, in another game called the ultimatum game, we'll put 100 bucks on the table. You can give as much or, you know, keep it all or whatever. Or you can offer some to, to your partner. But Here's the hitch, okay? If you offer the uh, the money to that person, to that other person, and they reject the offer, then nobody gets any money. 
Okay, so now what happens? You're going to shift and you're going to give away 50%. You're going to offer them close, your partner close to 50%. Because people come into these economic transitions, uh, transactions with norms of fairness. And fairness is pretty much 50-50, okay, of between peers. <clears throat> so again, and this has been replicated all over the world. We're taught, this is what we're talking, this is real human nature, not what Ayn Rand thought human nature was. Okay. We're born already with these biases. Okay. That, that, uh, not only allow us to promote our own self-interest, but to take into consideration the social context within which we're born. Now it's not all, it's not all, uh, sweetness and light because a young infants also will be more generous towards individuals who like, who look like them than don't look like them, who speak the same language as they do as, uh, as, or speak the same language in their language community. They don't speak yet because they're not, you know, they're, you know, five, six months old, uh, than, than an individual who, uh, who speaks a different language. So we also come in with these, with these biases to, yes, we have to be social. We have to promote the social good, but we should kind of give a little bit of a, uh, uh, you know, a leg up, a bias towards helping those in our tribe, okay, those who are like us. <clears throat> and that's one of the things that you also see in behavioral economics. These things emerge, these biases emerge very early on, and they last throughout the lifetime, unless there's education or some other factors, cultural factors that come in to mitigate against them. So I wanted to actually ask you about about the current public perception of Ayn Rand and objectivism, especially mm-hmm. in the current political climate, what do you think the majority of people, especially in the U.S., think about her right now? I think of the people, uh, as you said, people either have not heard of her or they, they, uh, they're followers, they're dyed-in-the-wool followers. And if, and if you uh, if you have spoken to uh, followers of objectivism, they truly believe that this is a moral philosophy that everyone should follow, that this is is the you know leading to a bright uh, and perfect uh, human future, uh, and then there are the people who have very strong uh, reactions against them. Uh, I like to think of myself as somewhere in the middle, because I see the sense of having to look out for your own self-interest. If we put others' uh, self-interest above our own too frequently, we can harm ourselves. On the other hand, there has to be some common sense applied to this, right? I'm willing to help you. I'm going to expect you to help me back sometime in the future. It doesn't have to be uh, immediate. Or I expect you to pay it forward. Okay. So we have to, I guess the bottom line is we can never forget that we're social beings within a social context. The problem with objectivism is that it denies that reality. The idea that you can somehow promote yourself without having positive or negative impact on other people is simply wrong. I think uh, one reason why objectivism is currently a controversial topic is because many people associate Ayn Rand with high-profile political figures, like you mentioned earlier, specifically mm-hmm. Republicans, and one person in particular that I'm thinking of is Paul Ryan. Uh, is it yes. correct to say that Paul Ryan is someone who does ad- identify as an objectivist? Yes, he is. A, he is a, a follower of, of Ayn Rand. Um, so is Donald Trump. Uh, Trump and uh, many of the members of his uh, cabinet. Um, lots of celebrities. Uh, Brad Pitt, for example. Um, 
he's she's enormously popular because it she feeds this idea that you don't need to rely on anybody else that you're master of your own fate you're captor captain of your soul um but generally what they don't pay attention to is all of the uh the factors that came into play to support them along the way so uh you know if you if you're born into into a middle class family or an upper middle class family and you work hard to get into harvard or whatever you say see i worked hard and i got here okay but look at the prosperity you were already born into look at the fact that your parents probably had connections look at uh, all of the things that were put into place that were supporting you along the way uh to use another example is one that Elizabeth Warren gives that, you know, you didn't get there on your own. Um, so you say, I built this company. Okay. And it be- and I became a billionaire overnight, but you drove on the streets that are, that are, uh, supported by, by taxes, right? To, to build and to maintain that infrastructure. If your house catches on fire, you call the police department. You call, uh, I mean, you call the fire department. If somebody breaks in, you call the police department. There's any number of things that we have called, uh, uh, public goods, right? We pay into these things. This is what it means to have uh, a complex uh, civilized society, which is that we, uh, and I don't mean civilized in terms of, you know, uh, industrial, okay? It just means you have a civilized society. Usually what that means is individuals are paying into a common good so that they can all enjoy it. So you don't get there on your own. Uh, if you, you, it's like a fish in water. You're blind to all of the benefits that you enjoy because so many others in your country or your society contributed hard-earned tax dollars in order to provide those benefits for you. Do you think these celebrities who publicly associate themselves with objectivism even fully understand what it is? Do you think it's possible that someone like Paul Ryan could misinterpret it and thereby even misrepresent it? I think they do. Uh, I think they don't misunderstand it. I think they understand it perfectly well. The problem is that they try to apply it. And as I mentioned, it happens over and over again, is that that doesn't work. So another example is that um, uh, the, the members of the uh, of the government who, who believe quite strongly in objectivism uh, think that social programs are evil. Okay, that what social programs do is they uh, they enslave people. They get them used to um, living on government benefits. And so we should all be John Galtz. We should all be rugged individualists. We should all be, you know, standing on our own two feet. And so they got social programs. They think paying uh, uh, that what happens with social programs is that people who don't need them have to pay a lot of money into them, even though they're never going to use them. And the people who are using them are too lazy to work. That's, that's the, that's the underlying psychology there, the underlying philosophy. That's what they believe. Um, but again, as I point out, that doesn't work. We, uh, Kansas, for example, um, uh, uh, instituted exactly that policy. They cut taxes on the rich. They cut taxes on, uh, on businesses. And as a result, the, the state went bankrupt and a vast majority of the population ended up facing some fairly dire uh, financial strain. So 
I don't think that they're misunderstanding Rand. I don't think they're misunderstanding objectivism. I think they're doing what objectivism says you should do. The problem is that when you do that, it leads to disaster. It leads to financial, economic, and social disaster. The pullback, the, the pushback on that is they say, well, they didn't do it right, okay, or they misunderstood Ayn Rand. Uh, that's not what she meant. Uh, they did it the wrong way. It doesn't matter how many ways you do that. If you don't take into consideration that you're part of a social fabric, that you have to, your success has to somehow make your country successful as well. That means other people who are living there. Then you're going to end up in the way that the global meltdown, the what happened to Kansas and, and many other situations uh, took place. Uh, okay, so I want to ask you a hypothetical question now. And you've provided examples yes. of how objectivism doesn't translate when it's applied to real-life problems. Um, I want to ask you to imagine a society in which everyone is an objectivist. What do you think would happen in this particular society? Um, I think what would happen is that um, it, it, basically what you've already seen, the, the, the okay, if everybody's an objectivist and everybody's pursuing their own self-interest without regard to how it impacts other people, then you're going to end up with feudalism. Okay. Because there are always, this is another piece of the puzzle here. Okay. If you look uh, at other species and you look at the, uh, the history of human, uh, of, of human history, there are going to be certain talented individuals, certain dominant individuals who will end up getting all the stuff unless there's something put in place to make sure they don't get all of this stuff. So in an objectivist society, what you're going to see is a lot of people looking out only for their self-interest. Some are going to be much better than that than others, and they're going to get all this stuff, and other people are going to have the leavings. You also will not have um, uh, any of the social benefits. Uh, an example is the Honduras, uh, where they, uh, they instituted in many of the programs that are uh, in in line with objectivism, and so the infrastructure crumbled. The, the roads are bad. Okay, it's um, uh, the country simply didn't work anymore. So cooperative effort is the the, the strength of human of human nature. Cooperative effort has been our um, our saving grace throughout human history. And self-interest, the blind pursuit of self-interest, has been the downfall. Uh, there have been critical responses to your articles about Ayn Rand, um, including the PBS article published in 2016. Uh, have you been able to defend your position in the face of this criticism? Yeah, my uh, the second, uh, the, the first one that I wrote, uh, this is what happens when you take Ayn Rand seriously, um, log some ungodly number of hits, like 300,000 uh, hits, and there were thousands of comments. Um, and I responded to some of them, but then what I did was I wrote a second uh, column, uh, What Ayn Rand Got Wrong About Human Nature, where I went in more, into more detail, uh, also quoting from, you know, from, her, from her corpus, from her works, uh, to support the things that, that I was saying. Uh, but most of the objections that people raise, uh, they always fall into two camps. The, the, uh, the first says you misunderstood her because that's not how I, I understand uh, Ayn Rand. Uh, they'll say she never said that, even if I give them a quote 
uh, were indeed, yes, indeed, she did say that, okay? Uh, the, the second thing is that they say, see, I followed this, uh, this philosophy and I'm doing great. Um, I rose to the top of my profession or I have, you know, um, I'm a CEO of a multi-million dollar company and there's no argument there. I never argue that that wasn't going to get you there, right? That's, that's not, that's not the question. The question is, how's everybody else doing around you? And that's, that's what objectivism thinks you shouldn't worry about. So if it's okay with you, um, I'd like to read a few lines from one of these critical responses. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a quote from a blog post written by Greg Salmieri in 2016. The blog is hosted by the Ayn Rand Society, by the way. Uh, So he says, research psychologist Denise Cummins wrote a piece on a PBS blog about what happens when people attempt to put Rand's ideas into practice. Her aim there was not to engage with Rand's ideas per se, but to discuss what happens when certain ideas are put into practice and then to explain why these ideas lead to these results. That's a reasonable project to take up with respect to an influential author's views, and since one cannot be a universal expert, it is reasonable to rely on secondary or tertiary resources when pursuing such a project, but the sources on which Cummins seems to have relied were all amateurish hat jobs that presented an unrecognizable distortion of Rand's ideas. So what do you think of this? Well, he's false. Uh, that's that's one of the things that... Uh, uh, he was not the only one who made that argument. Okay, that's what I said. That's the the first or second camp. But as I said, that's why I wrote the second article because they said that I was reading secondary sources that I had never read Rand, uh, that I was unfamiliar with her actual works, and so the second article is chock full of quotes from uh, from Rand's corpus. Okay, from the virtue of selfishness and all the other things that she wrote. Not the not the novels. Okay, but the actual philosophical writings uh, that she wrote. So, no, I certainly was, I'm a scientist, uh, and I'm a scientist of, the, I think, the, the highest caliber. Um, I've uh, published in quality scientific journals. I review articles for quality scientific journals. I know what investigative uh, um, journalism ethics are all about. I know, I understand those things. I would never rely on secondary sources to, to make a claim about any person's theory or any person's philosophy. So you can rest assured that I did read <laughs> all of Rand's uh, uh, corpus and that the quotes that I put are actual true quotes from her works. And then you also said that, um, you know, there's two different camps and one camp believes that they just interpreted and run in a different way that suits them. So here is a section about the nature of cooperation. Um, from the companion to Ayn Rand um, in a chapter written by Daryl Wright. Uh, so this one goes, says he says this in the, in the section, the heroes um, in Atlas Shrugged, their lives are focused on achievement. They are thinkers, producers, creators. They dedicate themselves to remaking the earth in the image of their values. Their fundamental means of dealing with one another is through trade, payment, not expropriation. And though they are independent, they value each other profoundly. They trade, the trade they seek with one another is neither exclusively nor more, most importantly, immaterial, but spiritual. They experience living together in a rational world, bringing our real work out of hiding and trading achievements. They are egoists, but they are also profoundly social. They're, they are anything but the predatory lone wolves of standard conceptions of egoism. Um, and that is, that is a very, um, <laughs> if he believes that that is what Rand was describing, then I think he needs to go back and reread the novels and he needs to reread the works because that's not at all what happens. 
At the end of Atlas Shrug, Galt has uh, joined with other captains of industry to break all unions. And he justifies this by saying, you need us more than we need you. That does not sound like mutual respect to me. Um, here's a quote from Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, where Ayn Rand wrote, collectivism or any form of uh, cooperation, really, is the tribal premise of primordial savages who, unable to conceive of individual rights, believe that the tribe is a supreme omnipotent ruler, that it owns the lives of its members and may sacrifice them whenever it pleases. Okay. Um, I, I would like you to take note of the word savage. Okay. Ayn Rand had a view of human nature that there were some individuals who were more enlightened, who were better than others, who were clearer thinkers and so on, but not in a benevolent way. That these people deserve to have more. And uh, there was very little respect for the, quote, little people that upon which they had to rely. So in other words, I made a billion dollar business, okay? I did this by... Um, by paying people sub wages, you know, slave wages, okay, indenturing them, basically, okay. And I think that that's appropriate, right? That's what an objectivist would say. This is appropriate because I was pursuing my self-interest. Now, do they respect the people upon which their wealth was built? That isn't I don't see how an objectivist could actually claim that that is the case. That is that has never been the case in any social policy or economic policy that has been enacted based on objectivism. So if you do you think a better philosophy to live by would be one that is the complete opposite of objectivism, maybe something that looks like socialism? I think we have to face the fact that socialism, a social network, excuse me, a social um, safety net is required in in order for a society to function. Uh, I think, again, if you, human beings, um, the entire history of human being, of, of humanity has been one of social upheaval because certain, inevitably, a certain small group of individuals end up, again, getting all the stuff, while other people are suffering and struggling simply to, to live. And inevitably, there is some kind of revolution, whether it's a violent revolution or uh, it's a, uh, uh, um, you know, legislation. Uh, there's pushback in terms of elections. There's some kind of, of pushback. There has to be let me be more 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 blank, you know, more more straightforward about this. All species, including humans, have status hierarchies. If you allow status hierarchies to become too entrenched, rather than putting in safeguards that level the playing field at each stage of the game, you're going to end up inevitably with one or two or a handful of individuals having all of the resources, having priority of access to all communal resources, while, while others are starving or doing without. That is sim a simple biological fact. Our, the founding fathers knew this, okay? That's why they didn't want uh, an aristocracy. Um, the progressive tax uh, uh, code that was put into place 
during the Eisenhower administration by Republicans, actually, understood this, which is why the tax rate was 90%, the top tax rate. If you don't have these things, inevitably expect that there is going to be vast social inequality and hard on the heels of vast social inequality is social upheaval. You can bet on that. You said that you were between the two groups of people who either love or hate Ayn Rand or love her or follow her or, you know, are extreme critics of her philosophy. Um, so I want to ask you, if you were to create your own philosophy, one that you think is an improvement over objectivism, what would it entail? Hmm. Are there any aspects of objectivism that you would incorporate into your philosophy? I think that's a very interesting question. Um, again, the reason why I say I'm in the middle, uh, you know, the sort of philosophy that I would have is, is you have to look after your own interests. You can't expect other people to carry you around, okay? And you should feel good about taking advantage uh, of others. Um, so you have to have a balance between self-regarding behavior and other-regarding behavior. You have to have a balance between pursuing your self-interest but always keeping in mind the interests of others. Uh, a simple way of putting it, you know, that's out there in, in the, you know, uh, the meme that's out there is look for win-win situations. That is, don't sacrifice yourself uh, necessarily, you know, for others unless the, the situation is extreme. Take care of your own stuff, but never lose sight of the fact that you are in a, you are a social being in a social group. And unless other people are also benefiting, in the long run, you're going to pay. All right, Dr. Cummins, thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Thank you.